You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. I'm your host, and with us is our namesake guest, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. This is an episode that is a follow-on to our Christianity and Classical Culture recent two-part mini-series on the notion of progress. And the question that we're posing to Dr. Fleming today in today's episode is that, Dr. Fleming, apart from everything that you said in those, those two episodes, at least we should concede that technological and, and medical progress have been unqualified benefits to the human race. What say you? No, absolutely not. Uh, I, 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 know, I know this is speaking, of, speaking as someone who uh, would be blind without the medical surgery that was available in the late 1940s. Um, I still per- say unhesitatingly that uh, progress in medicine has not been an unqualified benefit, that there's, all, there's always a payment that has to be made and societies have to decide how much of that they wish to make. So apart from your personal example, what, what are some larger examples that you're thinking of? Okay, well, look, uh, technical talking very briefly, I mean, very broadly about all all technology, whether it's in engineering or in sending rockets to the moon or or medical technology or or even um, social and educational uh, techniques or or procedures or machines. They used to have things called teaching machines, which I always found was a uh, a wonderful thing. Uh, Human beings have trouble enough teaching. You could imagine what a machine could do. Technological progress almost always creates problems. Some of them are can be anticipated. Others are not so easy. In the 1970s, 80s, 90s, the neoconservatives were always talking about uh, unanticipated consequences of uh, social, social improvement or social change. And what they meant is if you give a lot of money – uh, to support welfare dependence, for example, then they won't work and they'll become uh, dependent on the government. They'll start taking drugs. And, and I said, well, how was this unanticipated? Surely some knowledge of the human race would tell you that if you allow most people not to work, and but, you, but will nonetheless provide for their comforts, human history, even the, the, history, the experience of Jamestown, where everybody was able to eat and live, whether they farmed or fished or hunted or contributed to the colony, they ended up starving. And it was only when John Smith uh, introduced sort of free enterprise and, uh, and competition saying he who works will eat. You know that 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 they managed to survive. So we know we know from history that upper classes that don't have to work for a living get very degenerate. So, so I think there's a as a to a large extent a myth about unintended consequences. I think the consequences of the welfare state going back to the 1930s were to subordinate a large number of voters to the permanent government, and they did that effectively, but. Uh, other, you know, more, more, more obvious things like motor cars and, and uh, gas-fueled furnaces, these, the, of course, they lead to these serious problems of pollution. And while 
global the global warming may be largely man-made global warming may be largely a myth the fog that's over china this the horrible killing smog which <laughs> partly explains why chinese tourists are always wearing masks when they get to the good clean free air of europe and america uh, they, they, they're so used to wearing these masks, you know, because of the, the, the awful air quality they have. Rapid, rapid technological progress can mean uh, uh, high rates of pollution, can mean overpopulation. When you, when you, it's nice to be able to, to uh, conquer plagues in Africa and Asia, but these are places that are used, they're used to having plagues. They're used to having a population periodically reduced. And the alternative then becomes mass starvation. These are things which people don't think about much. Or um, the, the, the example I, I mentioned earlier, dependency, not just the dependency of uh, welfare recipients or people who are used to having their children educated for free by government when, say, 125 years ago, they had to pay something. Now, of course, the taxpaying minority of America all pay uh, through property taxes and state income taxes, and to a small extent through federal income tax, they all we all pay something toward educating children. But it's mostly this this money is not spent on our own children. It's spent on the overpaid uh, so-called teachers and uh, and bureaucrats. So we have all of these things that are supposed to have enriched our lives: the automobile, the cell phone. The, uh, the various uh, contraceptive pills and contraceptive techniques, cures for malaria, Ebola, bubonic plague, uh, etc. And they all, to some extent, produce uh, side effects. But, you know, we call them side effects because we don't like them. You know, if you take a, if you take a medicine, you know, that to cure, I don't know, to cure some terrible bacterial infection and your hair falls out and your fingernails won't grow and you, you start having psychotic episodes. You see, curing the disease, uh, we call the effect of the drug, and the other we call a side effect. Now, as uh, Garrett Hardin, a very brilliant ecologist, not somebody I agree with on a lot of issues, but he said there's no such thing as a side effect. Any, any, any chemical, any medicine, any, any technology, it, ha it has a range of effects, and some of them are good, and some of them are quite destructive. And so we better quit, put, put aside this unintended consequences, put aside the notion of side effects, or in a war, put aside the notion of collateral damage. You know, we make war for the past 125, 130 years. We make war in the West against civilians. Civilians are targeted uh, by uh, the United States government, by every government in the world. We deliberately kill non-combatants in order to reduce the will of the enemy to fight back. This has been going on since the 1860s and the war between the states, and it is now de rigueur. And that is why things like war crimes trials at the, at the Hague, uh, pr uh, under pressure from the U.S. and NATO, our NATO allies, these are such a travesty considering that no country right today, no country is more willing, other than perhaps the state of Israel, no country so targets civilians 
as the United States. We don't want to talk about it, of course. It's not polite. It's not nice. But we do it. One might think that the War Crimes Tribunal exists solely to prosecute Bur uh, uh, Bosnians, Croats, and Serbs these days. Yeah, it's funny how few uh, how few Bosnian Muslims who who were the worst war criminals and and what was a, a a pretty terrible war. I mean, <clears throat> I didn't see much of it. I I was there for for uh, in Herzegovina for uh, for a week, and uh, I visited hospitals. I was at the front. I was I was fired on. Uh, but I and I I talked to a lot of the guys, both uh, both uh, Serbs and Croats. And uh, they were. It was, uh, you know, it, 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 this was a rough time. And you know, in the uh, in the immortal words of uh, Bedford Forrest, "War means fatten, and fatten means kill it." And if you want to pretend it doesn't, then you come up with these uh, smart smart bombs that only kill uh, only kill bad people. And uh, and if you're going to fall for that kind of stuff, before long, every kind of uh, chemical weapon of mass destruction is legitimate because it serves the it serves the interest of democracy and feminism and uh, international human rights that's what we said when you know when we bombed uh, belgrade and novi sad we were we were fighting a war for human rights uh, how, how how taking people's uh, sovereign rights away to rule their country and killing civilians uh, along the way, how that, how that's a human right is something I leave to better men than I to uh, to decide. So we uh, have, uh, I'm always surprised by how accurately those smart bombs uh, target wedding parties. Yeah, uh, they, they, yeah, they fairly consistently do that. Yeah, to to your original point about you know curing malaria in Africa, another thing you know uh, public education. Some people might say, well. Is it, that that might be very socially Darwinistic of you, Doctor? I mean, where is your heart for your fellow Christian? Well, you know, first of all, uh, there's a lot of nonsense spouted by uh, so-called Christians these days. Whether it's the Bishop of Rome, as my Lutheran friends like to call him, uh, who uh, is uh, every day seems to do something to bring the Catholic Church into disrepute. I, I figured sometimes that Pope Francis' great dream in the, in, was to undermine any notion, not just of papal infallibility, but of papal intelligence. So, but then you have, for example, the Archbishop of Canterbury. A few days ago, he said he did not see how anyone, in, any Christian in good conscience, could support uh, Donald Trump because uh, <laughs> it, he found no problem in supporting uh, Barack Obama or Tony Blair or any any of the other people. Or uh, yesterday, a member of the of the Anglican Church of Scotland, the Episcopalian Church of Scotland, said we all should pray that young Prince George. Uh, grow up to be a fine, upstanding homosexual. Now, how could anybody in good con I'm not talking about Just practically speaking, would you really want your child to grow up belonging to a small segment of society that has very high rates of suicide, uh, death by violence, death by terrible diseases, high rates of, uh, of uh, depression? I mean, surely... Even if you were a homosexual and had a child, you would pray that the child be delivered from that particular evil. So on, uh, on, on, to, to, to get to your question, 
the so, uh, having having said all the horrible, nasty things about official Christendom today, the truth is that since sometime in the 19th century, Christianity has remodeled itself as a Marxist cult. And in Marxism, of course, you destroy all barriers, all boundaries. So what I what I would do for my own children, you know, that is I look out for their education and welfare. I should do for my neighbor's children. What I would do for my neighbor's children, I should do for the children downstate. And what I do for the children downstate, I should do for the children halfway across the country. And anything I would do for them, I should do for the children of the world in Africa, South America, and China. In other words, we have no peculiar and particular responsibilities for uh, the welfare of those that are near and dear to us. We, we have only responsib- we have responsibility for everybody on the planet. And we should lie awake at night, by the way, because if we go to sleep, the stars will fall from their courses if we don't, if, if, if we don't uh, concentrate on it. This is, of course, has nothing to do with Christianity, which is nothing if not a religion of peculiar duties. Mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, children, grandchildren, neighbors, all have citizens all have specific duties to each other. And the duty I owe to my wife and children is not a duty I owe to you as a friend and colleague, but my duties to you as friend and colleague are vastly more than the duties I would owe to somebody living in Washington, D.C. or Beijing, for that matter. So Christianity does not teach us to be in, to be uh, indifferently generous because any family, even Donald Trump, if he spent every penny he had would and, and went bankrupt, would only be able to do a marginal amount of good if you distributed his wealth to the population of the world. So you, you can't do it. What we're talking about is building up uh, the power of government, not taking care of people. Now, having, having said all this, does this mean I'm against um, improvements in medical technology? Absolutely not. Does it mean uh, I believe that we should throw people out in the street to die if they can't pay their bills? No. What I am saying is that because we have this view that if we can do something, we must do it. So if we can prolong the life of an 85-year-old cancer sufferer who has never paid taxes and spent all his money on uh, cigarettes, booze, and narcotics – and that we should spend, let's just say, $50,000 a year keeping him alive, or 100000 which in some cases. Well, where's that 100000 coming from? And if you multiply that 100000 by a 100000 where are the billions coming from to take care of people who refuse to take care of themselves, have been so uh, shiftless that they don't have friends, dependents, people who love them and will care for them, but... We're supposed to, and that means, let's just say in my own case, I have to spend $2,000 a year instead of using it to benefit my children, to help them in their career or their studies, I have to spend it on these other people. Now, you know, about back in the 90s, there was a guy named Daniel Callahan, and he he got very unpopular because he said some things a little bit like Rahm Emanuel's brother. He wrote a book saying, if you're going to have socialized medicine, you can't afford everything. 
You have to choose. The choice is difficult. Should we as a nation invest in prenatal care and the care of young children? Or should we invest it in people who don't have more than six months to live anyway, no matter what we do? And this led my uh, somebody I know, I, I call him a friend, he's probably too, that's much too strong, but Dick Lamb, the governor of uh, Colorado at the time, no Christian, no conservative, a liberal Democrat, but he came out with the infamous statement, we all have a duty to die and to pass this world on to the next generation. Well, to a large extent, Lamb was right. Now, where I would part with Dick Lamb and, uh, and his and his incredible wife, Dottie, and, and other socialists, is that they think, they would, they would say that we collectively have these duties. And so, for example, if I'm Donald Trump, and I have a lot of, uh, I have all this money, and I have a medical procedure that'll keep my carcass moving for another uh, six months, well, it's my money. I should be able to spend it. But what they want you to do is to say, no, Trump has no more right than, say, a poor man like, like me or, 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 and that I have no more right than somebody who has never worked a day in his life and has just been a parasite on his fellow citizens all these years. And I say these are, these are, these are important differences. If you could pay your own way, you're not hurting anybody. Now, let's, let's, let's take my example. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, to put a mildly far from rich, but I'm better off than a lot of people. And and uh, l- let's just say I could leave my children some hundreds of thousands of dollars if if I if we cashed in tomorrow or cashed out. Uh, I guess now should let's suppose I'm diagnosed with some terrible disease. I can either let nature take its course and I'll be dead in uh, six to 12 months, or I can spend every penny I've got and go into debt and prolong my life by three months and then leave my children with debt rather than assets. What's the right thing to do? Well, I can't speak for other people, but I can tell you that I, I I would hope that I would have the sense and the decency not to waste the money. And if we're going to talk right now, I'm just talking as a natural man. If we're going to talk as a Christian, we don't place our ultimate faith in the physical reality of this world. To the extent we're natural men, we put we we have a physical immortality in the form of children and grandchildren. To the extent we are Christian, we have faith in something that lies beyond this world. And if we're if we're so terrified about leaving it. And if we if we if we really don't believe in in the resurrection or any form of life after death, it it really nothing else really matters. So uh, I would suggest very strongly that the that the that the Christian argument in favor of massive wealth transfer to take care of very uh, terminally ill people or to take care of people who will not support themselves, that this is not an argument from Christianity, it's an argument from Marx and Engels. So you're saying that when my mother informed me about the starving children in Africa, when I didn't finish my food and I was nonplussed, that uh, this wasn't an argument against my Christian sentiments? Um, my mother, with my mother, it was my mother was much older than your mother, so my, my parents always talked about the starving Armenians. 
And it was only, you know, I must have been in my 50s before I realized how much the poor Armenians really suffered in the early days uh, right after uh, at the end of World War One under the oppression of the Turks. And by the way, the Turks favorite hatchet men, the Kurds, who went in and massacred large numbers of Armenians and the Armenian genocide is among the two or three most tragic stories of the of the 20th century. So I always heard about the starving Armenians. Or if you were eating too fast, you'd be told you're eating like a starving Armenian. By the way, I've known a lot of Armenians over over uh, a lifetime, long lifetime. Not, fortunately, not the Kardashians or Sher Sarkeesian, but I've never met a starving Armenian. <laughs> they all tended uh, to be rather substantially weighty, as if they were expecting some catastrophe. In <laughs> and they're about the best businessmen in the world. And they, you know, and give an, Ar- give an Armenian a quarter and an opportunity, and he'll be a millionaire next year. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that's. Uh, <laughs> That's one of the reasons I think they were so hated because you know the, the the Turks don't do much heavy lifting when it comes to when it comes to business technology and the Arme- the Armenians were always quite successful wherever they went. So no, uh, it is it is not. But see this this uh, it is not our job to take care of, of the uh, starving poor in Africa and in fact. If you look at the uh, kinds, at a lot of the studies made of international uh, relief, international wealth transfer, they they fall into two types. One is we send absolutely worthless, useless junk. You know, like there's a, a charitable organization in Minnesota that's that during the Ethiopian crisis sent nice hot woolen blankets to these people who are in the middle of a, of a terrible drought with average daily temperatures over 100. So it's either that or a huge amount of it is boondoggle. That is something like 90 to 95 percent of the money spent goes into advertising, bureaucratic overhead, staff expenses, lavish budgets for the people who are paid as if they're living in a war zone. Um, and so this inter- international relief is is perhaps the worst boondoggle in the world. That is next to cancer therapy and uh, and defense spending. So it, it uh, if you if you if you could know, like I I I, I know a, a very fine uh, Nigerian priest who is left our diocese and is now in uh, in uh, Texas. If he told me, look, in my native town, you know, a hundred dollars could go could buy a lot of food for decent people. You know, could you give me a hundred dollars? I'd give him the hundred dollars gladly because I trust him. I certainly don't crush the International Red Cross or um, much less the, the biggest scam of all, which is United Way, where, you know, which it collects huge amounts of money and then it gives it to other scam raising organizations like like uh, like the Red Cross. You remember when Elizabeth Dole was was executive director? I mean, she was getting paid a million dollars here. Just huge offices. I mean, these people they 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 live like Venetian aristocrats. And yeah, the idea and the thing the, the thing about United Way too, Doctor Fleming and I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but this idea of not quite celebrity celebrity fundraising, but where there's glitz associated with fundraising, and it, it so flies in the face of what I've been taught about charity and raising funds, which is, you know, you, you do it in secret, you, you don't make a big deal about it. 
Um, and United Way seems to sort of revel in this, and other charities like it, this, this celebrity culture around fundraising. It's, it's and they used, they used what I, I termed in one of my books the, the pornography of compassion. You know, you show starving people or heaps of dead bodies, and then you have the voiceover from some actor who once had a small part in MASH, and they come on and they explain <laughs> how, how your money – well, your money, your money is going to help the, the, the honchos at United Way live in splendor, but it's, it's, it's rarely going to get there. But finally, even when it succeeds, they have no plan for what are the consequences of success because the consequences for success are something like when a deer population around this around the Midwest gets out of control, then you have to hire people to go in and kill all the deer because uh, they, they have multiplied too much. What happens in Africa uh, is they kill each other. You end up with you with huge, massive wars. So the idea that uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of massive programs, you know, mass education, for example, isn't that just swell? In Cuba, they say they have 100 percent literacy. But what do they read? The Communist Manifesto, the the the, the deep thoughts of Fidel and Raul. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you had, let's suppose we had massive 100% um, uh, literacy in America, what'd they be reading? They'd be reading uh, uh, comic books. Or Us, reading, Us Magazine or People. Yeah, Us Magazine, soup labels. I mean, the fact is, if you sit in a doctor's office and you see what, or on an airplane and you see, I don't remember the last time in a public place I saw anybody reading anything that, uh, that shouldn't have been snatched out of their hands by the Christian thought police and set on fire in front of them. <laughs> My Lord. I mean, you, they don't they don't even read decent pop fiction. You know, it's it's Clive Cussler. It's who's this horrible woman, Donna Leone or whatever, who writes horrible detective books about uh, about Venice. Maybe I'm being unfair to her, but all I see is junk. And believe me, Stephen, I actually, because it's part of my job as culture critic, I look at junk. I'll read the first chapter. You can often get these things like a chapter free on Kindle or Google Books or something. <clears throat> I'll look at the chapter of a famous book and uh, and see, is the person even, is, is, do they have bare competence in telling a story? And usually they don't. So it it would be better if we had a healthy folk culture in which most people couldn't read because now reading means it's like having a TV. You're exposed to Matt Lauer or, or uh, the, 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 those worthy gentlemen and ladies at Fox News and CNN. It's better. It would be better to be living in the illiterate Scottish Highlands in the 14th century than to have access to this stuff. Well, we're getting very far afield because what you know, what I we really started out talking about was essentially, uh, isn't it an unmitigated, uh, a uh, an unqualified benefit to uh, have improvements, in particular in in technologies that make life easier for people? And the easiest one we can see is. Um, is the technologies, medical technologies and medical related paramedical, you know, automated wheelchairs. And we have these things that now they're going to work out that, you know, if you spend a million dollars a year, some people will be able to move their fingers by just thinking thoughts. And 
again, there are, uh, or, or for example, you have uh, that worthy uh, South African Oscar Pistorius who tried to, uh, he, he doesn't have feet, so he tried to uh, try to participate as an Olympic runner with these metal uh, springs on, on his feet, which gave him a considerable uh, advantage, and, and it was denied. Uh, so it's, of course, I, I favor uh, medical technology, and by the way, it doesn't need that much government support. As if you will, these people, these 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 companies, medical companies, make huge amounts of money on patents and uh, selling this stuff. And uh, I'm not again, I'm not opposed to government support, but I, I don't think that's essential. I think the profit motive is pretty much uh, what drives it. But what I'm saying is very clearly that we have decided as a society that merely breathing, even if it's breathing on a machine, that leading the life of an insect is so important that it trumps all other values. And so if on the one side you could say, well, we can pay for the education and life of uh, J.S. Bach, Thomas Aquinas, Sophocles and Virgil, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, you can fill in the blanks, whatever great, you know, whatever great artists and writers uh, you wish to. And on the other hand, we could keep alive uh, 85-year-old drug abusers for another six months. And we in America, we choose the latter. We make that choice every day through our tax policy. We make that choice every day by getting thrilled by medical technological improvements that try to pretend, for example, not just that mere physical life is all there is, but also that, uh, oh, you, you're a paraplegic? You lost both legs in, in, uh, in a war? Well, there's no reason you can't still play basketball. We, have, we could spend several hundred thousand dollars, you know, and, and you can compete in the, in the Paralympics. Um, you know, and once upon a time, once upon a time, a person who was severely disabled would look at himself and say, well, you know, the mere physical life of the human animal, which I thought was the best thing I could hope for, that's been taken away. Perhaps there's something else. Perhaps there's a life of study. Perhaps there's a life of prayer and meditation. We want to con we concentrate only on the lowest aspects of human life, mere existence and hedonistic gratification. And we and it's as if we say all these other things which make us truly human are important. Uh, you know, the Europeans like to brag about their socialized health care all the time. It's it's a bit tedious. But and I, and I say that as someone who's now part of that system. But whenever I brought up the point of, well, who decides who dies, right? So yeah. Mrs. Smith is hooked up to the machine indefinitely uh, to the tune of a quarter of a million to a million pounds or however much it might be. I usually get a, a you know, vacant stare, shrug of the shoulders as if you know, this is a ridiculous question that I'm asking. You know, that it doesn't matter if we bankrupt the country to save Mrs. Smith. And it's because, as you say, if the value is all in this life, if there's nothing afterwards, then we have to do everything uh, to preserve it. They're acting in this superhuman way uh, in reaction to preserving what it is uh, that they see as the only life that matters. 
Yes, and you know, Stephen, it doesn't always work that way because in the Netherlands, as I'm sure you're aware, and increasingly in other places in Europe, uh, they have not so subtle ways of making sure that Mrs. Smith uh, exits this veil of tears before she has bankrupted the, the government, which means also bankrupting her family. So in the Netherlands, they'll have somebody, well, she may have 10 years left of life in her, but it's going to cost a lot of money. And uh, the yeah, it would be it would be Mrs. Van Diemen or something yeah. in the Netherlands. <laughs> yes, yes, Mrs. But, Van Diemen, <laughs> Mrs. Van Gotrocks. and uh, <laughs> so they they talk to her next of kin, her son, her daughter, her nephews, and they say, you know, uh, Mrs. Van Diemen, she's a wonderful lady, but you know her quality of life is really evaporated, and it's going to cost the government a million dollars a year to keep her. And by the way, uh, we have to we will confiscate all her assets. And she's worth about a million and a half. You could all have that right now if you agree that she's in such pain and suffering and incapable of making the decision for herself so you can make the decision for her to do the right thing and let her go. This happens over and over in the Netherlands and in Belgium. It's been it's been the subject of books written by physicians who have witnessed this, just as physicians in America witness uh, the uh, the murder of children born in an in an abortion uh, procedure, but they're alive, and so they're exposed and left to die because they're unwanted. Well, the, the newborns are unwanted, the elderly are unwanted, and this was, of course, one of Callahan's points, and it's the point of Dr. Emanuel, uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel's uh, brother, which is if you have socialized medicine, you can't, you, you, ultimately, the day comes when government gets to choose who lives and who dies. And I've got a feeling, Stephen, in our case, <laughs> they, you know, I, I think I, if, if, if I had a, an, a life-threatening e emergency, I don't think I'd last 20 minutes. Well, I'd like to think if the government came to Garrett to have a quiet conversation that he would vote to keep you around. Well, I think he would. The question is, would you ask him? <laughs> I, the bums rush in, into the crematorium, I think, is what uh, many of us uh, can expect. So, um, yes, you know, it is it's the old one of the oldest principles of economics or logic, indeed, in the world, which is uh, the uh, that you you can't maximize two variables. I remember I was studying microeconomics with a, uh, a friend. We were colleagues at TCN University. We did we did programs for each other. I taught them, you know, Saint Augustine, and they taught me economics. We we each knew about nothing about the other's uh, interest. But uh, one day the economist said, "Well, you know, uh, Jeremy Bentham said the object of society was to secure, secure the greatest benefit for the greatest number." He said, "What's wrong with that?" What's interesting, the people in humanities couldn't answer. All the scientists had the answer. You can't maximize two variables because what if I want all the better? What if I want $100 trillion all for me? And I, and I declare that's, my, that's, that's, that's what I need. That's my benefit. And, uh, and the rest of you get nothing. So, uh, so you, can't, you can't at the same time say, or even pretend to say, we're going to maximize the quality of life for the worst off. This is the um, this is the John Rawls uh, maximum principle. We're going to 
We're going to elevate the lower class up to the point. We're going to give them every kind of wealth transfer through education, housing, everything. And then that requires lowering the top top fourth or whatever down to the point that it's not that they're all differences disappear, but simply that the, the differences are, are, are minuscule. But w- wait a minute. Those people at the top half either inherited the money legitimately or they made it. They are they have their own needs and concerns, especially if they have children and grandchildren. And what you're saying is that somebody in a Washington office gets to decide at what level you're going to live. And in our society, what we've decided is that decent standards of, of humane learning are unimportant. That decent music is unimportant. That that good books are unimportant. That 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 even virtuous living is unimportant. The beauty of holiness absolutely unimportant. That all that matters is the largest number of of pinheaded Americans who are still breathing on the planet. Now contrast this with the with the ancient Greek view, which is you know. Uh, uh, Achilles is saying, well, what my old man taught me when I was leaving for this war, he said, I, you know, this stairway always to be best and to fight among the foremost. And this is what, uh, uh, uh when Glaucus and I, Glaucus and, uh, and, uh, and Sarpedon and Sarpedon says, well, Glaucus, why else do we have the seats at the high table and in the palace? Why else are we treated as princes except that we have this great responsibility? We have to excel. We have to be the best. So I'm not, again, I'm not making an Ayn Randian or libertarian uh, or Nietzschean argument. I'm simply saying that societies have to choose. Uh, and they have to decide how they're distributing and who gets to decide. What we have decided is that is that politicians and bureaucrats make the decision and that the decision will always cut against the pursuit of excellence in any form, whether it is whether it's <laughs> cultural excellence or moral excellence. Well, may I, may I present a counterfactual, Dr. Fleming? Because sure. like you're talking about our society as it is constituted now, but what if we were in, in the Middle Ages? Would would the would progress at that point be sanctified because society was properly oriented, or would progress not even be at the forefront of discussions? Because where I'm going with this is I'm thinking about the themes in A Canticle for Leibowitz, which I recently yeah. reread. Um, because the open question in the book is, uh, can mankind handle progress even even uh, when Christianity is is uh, is part of the mode of operation of the society? Well, the the uh, certainly as we discussed in earlier um, in earlier episodes of this evolving discussion, uh, the notion of progress as a kind of force in nature, or like or uh, as something parallel to the the Christian story uh, and the fulfillment of human history in the incarnation and then in the second coming, to that extent that. Progress is a mystical good that we have to follow, a, a God, then no, that's totally incompatible with Christianity. What's also totally incompatible with Christianity, I think, is the economic notion that wherever an economic benefit is to be conferred by some by some uh, development, by an invention, the steam engine, that nothing else should uh 
should be part of a decision about whether to develop it or not. So, uh, and therefore, it wouldn't be right, for example, to try to preserve certain kinds of jobs in America. It automatically, if the market changes, those jobs go to China. But also that, that in other words, technological improvement is in itself an, such an overpowering good that it transcends every other form of human good. And the answer in the ancient world and the medieval world is, I don't know what you're talking about. There must be something wrong with your character. There's a story of, um, you know, of a, and I, I've forgotten the exact story, but it's a, a Roman emperor like Tiberius. Somebody brings him a new method of manufacturing glass and it's going to cut out all sorts of middlemen. Everything will be much simpler. Or maybe it's a machine. And the emperor says, um, uh, takes the plans and has them and has them ripped up. And he said, you know, you put a lot of people out of work with this. You cause an economic revolution. This wouldn't be good for people. All right, maybe that is extreme, but it it is a position worth thinking about. Every development, every technological change entails a series of consequences that could be disastrous for the best qualities of life in your society. The automobile, if I could undo the automobile, that would be my first move as ruler of, uh, as Ming the Merciless, the ruler of the planet. <laughs> because, you know, really, uh, you you want to, what I love is when I'm driving around Rockford and people are stepping on it and honking at me because I'm only going five miles over the speed limit. And one day, I, I, the guy is yelling at me through the window. Uh, I, I drive plenty fast. I'm not a slow driver. I'm not a good driver, but I'm not a slow driver. And I said, where are you going? You're going to be in Rockford at the end of your trip. You're not getting anywhere. But you see, <laughs> the whole America is now just one big Rockford of shopping malls and fast food chains. We have destroyed our country for the sake of getting from one boring place to another boring place. So, you know, in retrospect, quite apart from all the other bad things the uh, the, uh, the automobile did, we, we, we have just and – we, and we call it progress. Progress is inevitable. You can't stop progress. You can't stop change. Of course you can. You know, the, the Japanese at one point, when Ieyasu Tokugawa, uh, using Christian warlords and who armed with, uh, with, wep- with guns – when he made himself shogun of uh, Japan, as he immediately then turned around and started gathering up all the guns and telling the Christians to forswear Christ or he'd kill them. So, I mean, yeah, he stopped history. He stopped it. He stopped Japanese history cold in its tracks for several hundred years. Now, was that a good thing or a bad thing? That's not the question. The question is, can it be done? And the answer is, of course, it can be done. There's a wonderful um, at least until the Americans force you to come out into the marketplace. Yes, yes. Well, and you know the uh, the American who did that uh, was actually a collateral relative of my of my wife. So we have a uh, we have a part Japanese granddaughter, and uh, when she found that out, she was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably so. But uh, I when I was powerfully impressed when I was young and foolish in my late teens. Instead of old and foolish as I am now, when I was young and foolish, I read a lot of uh, Chinese philosophy. And it's not really philosophy; it's wisdom literature in translation. And I was very strongly attracted to the Taoists, not the not the magical, mystical Taoists, but the enigmatic early 
writers like Lao Tzu and Zhuang Tzu and those those sorts of people. And there's this great Taoist parable about a man is walking through the fields and he sees a peasant and the peasant is putting a bucket down into a into his well and then he gets it up and walks over to his rice field and dumps it in. He goes back and forth, back and forth. So this Confucianist sage says, uh, look, worthy, worthy peasant, there, there's this machine, which I can show you how to build it. It's what the, you know, Egyptians or Arabs call a shadoof. You know, it's this, this uh, thing that you, it uh, like a dipping rod on a pivot and you can pivot, dip it into the water. You bring it up and you move it over and you dip and you put part on. And he said, yes, I have seen such things and I have heard of them. And I thought about getting one, but then I talked to my Taoist master and he said, if I did that, it is I, I would be the slave of the machine. The machine would not be the slave of, of the human. Now, that's an extreme statement and obviously on the face of it, absurd. On the other hand, how much the more dependent we are on automobiles and telephones and computers and now electrodes they're putting on people. It's it's by the way, we're, we're, we're on the edge of the of uh, do androids dream of electric sheep. They've, they've now got technology where not not only will these electrode implants, not only will they help with epilepsy and things like that and depression, but they can change your mental outlook at uh, at your whim. And uh, if you could, if you take that with psycho and put that together with psychotropic drugs and everything else that's available, well, uh, frankly, you know, we, who, 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 who is the human? Who is the robot? That's the question Philip K. Dick was asking in that book. It wasn't a book about the horrors of immigration or, or the evils of machinery. It's a book about what, what, what is it to be human? And it's a very disturbing book because Dick doesn't have the answer. And in our world, we don't have the answer. We, but we like, as as the as the poor Taoist peasant predicted, we are now the servants of the machine, not vice versa. Hmm. So, for that reason, I say that we have to judge societies, the justice of societies, according to two criteria, the old, fine, Christian criterion articulated by Dr. Johnson, which is that you can judge the, uh, the morality of a society, but how, how well do they treat the poor and the downtrodden? And Johnson was among our greatest Christian writers, and, um, and he's right. And, of course, the, question, the answer is not how does the government treat the poor, but how do we treat the poor? How do, and this is called, this is this is the called charity caritas agape, and and you know Johnson when he saw like a, a sick prostitute dying in the London night, he he picked her up, slung her over his massive shoulder, took her to his house, fed and got a doctor in to help her, nursed her back to life. Okay, that that is that is what he didn't he didn't call the government to take care of her. He did what he, he acted like the good Samaritan uh, uh, toward a, hu a human being who he confronted who needed help. That's something we don't do today. We, we just simply pay a lot of money. But on the other hand, as Johnson himself, a man of superb, superb training uh, and learning and, 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 and spent time with the, with the most brilliant people in Britain 
uh, of his day. The other, what do we accomplish with our surplus? Every society has some surplus. The Greeks built temples. You know, the Romans built all sorts of wonderful theaters and buildings and, and bridges. What do we do? Because we, we have crummy infrastructure, which Europeans make fun of when they visit America. I mean, why our roads stink, our buildings fall down. But what, what, do, what do we do with our money? Well, it's, it's toys. It's gym cracks. It's, it's pornographic movies on our, on our uh, iPad. And so judged by that criteria, that is, on what excellence do we spend our resources, we would probably say, but look at all the people we're keeping barely alive. They may not have any brain. They may not know even that they are alive or they may not ever be able to do anything to make themselves or anyone else happy. But mere physical existence is all there is. And by God, we'll keep them all uh, moving or breathing. That that is our proudest boast, I think. And I, I frankly, I don't think it's a worthy goal for a civilized society. Is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover before you finish our episode, Dr. Fleming? No, I think I've made I think I've sown enough mischief and strife and unhappiness that that will be enough. <laughs> well, as always, thanks for your time and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.